The Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast is brought to you in association with Bonhams, where the historic and modern are equally valued. Hello, and welcome to the Art Newspaper Weekly Podcast. I'm Ben Luke. Each week we drill down into some of the art world's biggest stories. Coming up, as Freeze London and Freeze Masters approach, we look at the annual explosion of exhibitions in London's museums and galleries that greet their arrival. But I think for most of us in London, the UK and indeed beyond, this is the first chance to see a really big show of Jasper Johns for 40 years. So it's another one, a bit like Basquiat, where you can't quite believe it's been that long. But up first on the pod this week is the Zeitz Museum of Contemporary Art Africa, or Zeitz Mocha for short, a vast former granary on the seafront in Cape Town, South Africa, that's been converted into a gallery billed as the first major museum of contemporary art in Africa. The museum has just opened to the public. The museum's collection is a lifetime loan by the German entrepreneur and former head of Puma Sportswear, Jochen Zeitz, and it's being run by Mark Kurtzi, once director of the Rubel family collection in Miami. The conversion of the building has been done by the British architect Thomas Heatherwick, best known recently for a folly on the Thames, his doomed garden bridge which will not be built. Christina Ruiz, one of the art newspaper's editors at large, went to Cape Town in July to have a look at Zeitz Mocha and is with me now. Hi Ben, nice to be here. Christina, what were your first impressions of this rather grandiose project? So first of all I should just say that I was on a very, very early press preview of the museum and that only about five or six of the 80 plus galleries were installed at that point. So I actually didn't get to see very much of the art which is going on show uh, in the museum, but I did see the building which is uh, spectacular. Thomas Heatherwick, this is his first museum and I think he's done a superb job. He had basically to work with a building that had no windows. It was a granary, so it was full of vertical adjacent silos, which were used to store grain. Um, and he carved out a, a really spectacular atrium from this space, sort of like you would, um, you know, as if he were using a gigantic ice cream scoop, sort of scooped out a, set, a sort of a rounded shape in the middle. Uh, which he actually based on a kernel of corn, which he digitally scanned and enlarged, you know, up to 10 stories high. Used that as the um, model to scoop the space out. Uh, and then around this amazing atrium has uh, created around 80 galleries, which are sort of traditional white cube spaces. So I think the museum is wonderful as a building. One of the things that struck me when looking, I mean, I've only seen like CGI images and a couple of photographs that you showed me because it's all been very tightly under wrapped up until now. Hasn't yes. It? Um, but uh, they're talking about that atrium. One of the really striking elements of it is that there are these enormous concrete columns, cylindrical columns, which which are part of that scooping out that you said. So you've got sort of. Uh, columns which have been kind of uh, organically cut off in a way. Exactly. Well, those are remnants of the original silos, which Heatherwick was very keen to maintain uh, sort of their traces in the building and really celebrate uh, the granary's sort of history and heritage. Uh, you know, he said that he didn't want to create something alien to Cape Town as if a spaceship had landed in the city. Um, so uh, he wanted to work with the tubes, but uh, could only do so in a sort of limited way because obviously tubes are rubbish for showing art. So kept um, bits of them for the atrium and actually the lift shafts go straight up into the silos. So when you get in the lift, you're actually going in up into the silo. So it's pretty unique and spe- pretty spectacular. 
So that's the building. Let's talk about the organisation. So first of first off, who is Jochen Zeitz? So Jochen Zeitz is a German collector. Uh, he is the former uh, CEO of the sportswear company Puma. And he has had a sort of lifelong fascination with Africa. I believe he first visited Kenya a number of years ago, bought an estate there. He owns a lot of land in Kenya and he sort of runs sort of artist residency programs there and has um, sort of a lot of art on display there. And I think it was a chance meeting with Mark Curtsy when Mark um, was at the Rubel collection in Miami that then sparked this uh, decade-long partnership that has ended or culminated with this museum. And the other partnership at the heart of the museum is this partnership with v Waterfront, which is Victorian Alfred Waterfront. And it's very time. confusing, yeah. <laughs> so Alfred was uh, Queen Victoria's second son. v Waterfront are a commercial organisation... Yes, so it is a sort of uh, a retail and uh, I suppose tourist organization which is developing uh, 300 plus acres of waterside property in the Old Harbour area of Cape Town. Um, and the uh, existing development to date, I think it is the, or they say it is the most visited site in Africa. It has 24 million visitors every year. It's mostly restaurants, shops, uh, tourist attractions like an aquarium. There are other uh, not very exciting museums like the Diamond Museum. Um, it's also the embarkation point for Robben Island to visit the prison where Nelson Mandela was uh, held for so many years. So, And that actually is very close to Zeitzmoker. And so there's this arrangement with um, the V&A Waterfront and Jochen Zeitz whereby... They own the building, but they've kind of leased it to Zeitz, is that right? Yes, so the V&A Waterfront owns the building. They paid, I believe it's 500 million rand to uh, restore it and convert it into a museum. Um, they also had Thomas Heatherwick construct a luxury hotel on top of uh, the front section of the museum. And the V&A Waterfront will get all the revenue for that. So that's not going to the museum. So what we're looking at is a... Is a private museum but in many ways it doesn't seem to have that sort of scale of a private museum and especially it doesn't the organization you've 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 written a piece which will appear in the art newspapers october issue where you go into detail about how the museum has some of the sort of organizational sort of structure that you might expect from a public rather than the private Absolutely. I mean, I think it's very interesting. I think in the last few years, um, rich collectors around the world have been opening museums all over the place. Um, uh, some are better than others. I think one of the key problems that these museums have is, is longevity. I mean, in fact, this month, David Roberts, a Scottish property developer who opened a space 10 years ago in Camden, is shutting it down. He's still going to carry on doing various things. He's opening a sculpture park in Somerset, but the actual public gallery is going. And I think uh, that private galleries are always at risk of shutting down after the collectors lose interest or, uh, you know, die or whatever. Um, this seems like um, they're attempting to create the structures of a public institution. Uh, so, you know, board of trustees, endowment, long-term planning, and all of those things that we naturally associate, certainly in this country, with public institutions, by which we mean 
uh, government-funded institutions. But this museum receives no government funding either at the federal, state or municipal level. So it's entirely privately funded. And it should be said that some of the figures that are trustees or curators at large, I believe they call them, are quite illustrious figures. I noticed that Rosalie Goldberg, the director of the Performer Performance Art Biennial, is is part of is one is a, is a curator at large. Is that right? Absolutely. She is. Um, she's South African, as you know, and she um, is really one of the most well respected figures in the performance art world. Uh, it, and she is uh, the curator at large, I think they're saying, uh, of performative practice. Um, and so she's going to be very involved with programming the performance uh, for that museum. Interestingly, I don't know if you noticed, but the latest edition of Performer, which opens in November, I believe, um, has a focus on Africa, which surely is, um, uh, you know, has been influenced by her involvement with Zeitz Mocha. Um, and they've got, I mean, many illustrious curators on board. I think that's been one of the great successes thus far of the museum is in creating those international collaborations. And then, of course, you have ambassadors for the institutions around the world. I mean, I know that Rosalie Goldberg has been talking about this museum a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, Wendy Fisher, who is the president of the Guggenheim Foundation in New York, she um, may have come on board because of um, Rosalie Goldberg, who, you know, they're both very prominent New York figures. Um, and Wendy Fisher is uh, funding the training of 13 young curators at the museum. So there's lots of it that sounds really ethical, really... Uh, admirable in lots of ways but there is something which is a slight elephant in the room which is this relationship between Jochenzeitz and Mark Kurtzy which feels a, very unlike a public institution to me in, the, in that um, Zeitz is a private collector it's his collection which is going to be in this building and then Kurtzy has curated and developed that collection over the years so it feels like a very narrow scope in terms of curatorial input in that sense should alarm bells be ringing? Well um, several things to say here um, first of all I firmly believe that you know um, people who have money are free to do what they like with their money. So um, the only reason I suppose alarm bells are ringing is because this feels like a public institution uh, in the ambition of, you know, so many aspects of its operations, even though it is actually a private institution. Um, another thing is, just slightly to correct what you said in your intro, that the museum houses two collections. It houses uh, Jochen Zeit's personal art collection, which has been assembled by Mark Kurtzy, and it houses Zeitz Mocha's own collection, which has been developed separately um, through acquisition and gift, also uh, in a process also spearheaded by Mark Kurtzy. So some of the controversy has come from the fact that Kurtzy has this dual role. It should be said that any acquisitions that go into the museum collection, as opposed to Zeitz's personal collection, have to be approved by an acquisitions committee. But the purchases made for Zeitz don't go through that process, obviously, because he's just buying what he likes. So I suppose the question is, is there a conflict of interest in this dual role? A question I put to Curtsy, and he said that, I mean, he was very pragmatic about the arrangement. He said, you know, museums in Africa are struggling. Uh, they have no 
uh, money for acquisitions. They're failing in their primary role, which is to preserve art for future generations. And we had to come up with a new model to make this museum possible in this place, on this continent. And he also said that the curators are completely independent of Zeitz and will not be influenced by Zeitz, for example, putting pressure on them to show certain things from his collection. And that independence is enshrined in the contract that um, Zeitz has signed with the waterfront. One of the striking things about it is that you have a, a German entrepreneur and collector and a British architect. So it's a sort of European-generated project in lots of ways. To, to what extent are they trying to make this a, a profoundly African experience? Because it seems to me that that must be crucial to its success. I agree. There has been a lot of talk about Heatherwick being, you know, a white male European architect. I think to a large extent, those voices will be silenced when they see the building, because I think what he's done is spectacular. Um, I think that Mark Curtsy is trying to make the museum incredibly diverse in its staffing. So many, many of the creators are African. Many of the creators at large are African. And the great majority of the artists shown there are African. Um, again, I think it's perhaps slightly unfair to criticize the museum before it's even opened. I mean, I think, you know, let's give it a chance to get up and go and then perhaps criticize it from an informed standpoint. On that note, the opening programme seems to me a real statement of intent in the sense that there are three African artists who are 40 or under that are the opening exhibitions. Yes, I mean, absolutely. I think they are very keen to um, give a platform to younger African um, artists uh, and not just artists there will be you know shows on fashion designers and possibly musicians you know it's really a sort of center of contemporary culture if you will so um, the opening shows there are in fact um, many sort of mini shows within this massive um, display um, but the three major opening shows are devoted to Edson Chagas the Angolan artist who won the Venice Biennale for best, the Golden Line at the Venice Biennale for best national pavilion um, in 2013. <laughs> um, and in fact, <clears throat> Zeit and uh, Kurtzi saw that show and bought the installation there. So they have reinstalled it for the first time since Venice in the tunnels of the museum, um, which is this wonderful industrial space where sort of carts used to take the grain out of the silo. Um, so that's one show. Then we have uh, Kudzanai Churai, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly, who is a Zimbabwean artist who uh, makes photographs and posters sort of um, examining slash mocking um, contemporary African leaders and the sort of their posturing uh, and the sort of heroic poses that they strike. I know he's encountered some trouble in Zimbabwe for his art. And then the third show, um, third major show is Nandipa Mantombo, who's a Swaziland-born, South Africa-based uh, female artist who makes these amazing sculptures out of cowhide. I think many of them are actually uh, sort of self-portraits. She sort of models them on her own body, using her own body, and then um, sort of these ghost-like sculptures 
from these sort of animal materials left behind. So three very interesting, very different voices. Um, and as you say, you know, from three different countries in Africa, it's a real sort of statement of intent. Christina, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. On the 4th of October, collectors, museum directors, curators and the odd artist will flock to London for Freeze London and Freeze Masters, the two fairs staged in Regent's Park. The presence of the original Freeze Fair and its newer yet somehow more mature sibling has prompted a sea change in London's awesome calendar, when not only the commercial galleries but the non-profits too organise their biggest shows of the year to coincide with the fairs. It's prompted a kind of unofficial freeze festival where London is awash not only with the champagne, limos, haute couture and nipped and tucked bodies of the global collectorate, but also plays host to an extraordinary feast of exhibitions, mostly contemporary but also historical. Christina Ruiz is still here and we're joined by Jane Morris, another former editor of the art newspaper and now writing for The Economist among others. And we've each chosen some highlights from this autumn season. I've got a list in front of me Jane and Christina of something like 45 shows and this is by no means exhaustive we we really have in front of us an absolute mammoth task to try and see even a small percentage of these exhibitions Jane how are you feeling about it (laughs) it's an interesting dilemma isn't it because I'm old enough to remember when there was hardly any contemporary art to see in London the days before Tate Modern, the days when we all used to flock up to the Sartre Gallery at Boundary Road and where we would quite happily cross London for what then seemed like a marathon. You know, I remember going to the first free show in 1988 and it seemed like a marathon to go out to the docks. It was, it was near the Greenland dock. Um, and, you know, we would make these pilgrimages to see what little contemporary art there was. So on the one hand, I think it's fantastic that we've now got such a wealth to see here. But at the same time, I've just come off the back of Venice, Documenta and Munster. And I do sometimes wonder how much art any one person can see at any one time. And I guess, you know, we're back on the treadmill. I mean, it seems bad to be complaining about it, but I do feel faintly exhausted just thinking about it. Christina, do you have any kind of strategy that, that or approach that you have to how you pick the shows that you're going to see? Is it just a matter of I like the look of that? I'm going to pop and see that. Um, well, like Jane, I feel that I've been sort of on this treadmill for quite a long time now. So I, in fact, don't sort of uh, panic anymore when I see just, you know, a list of 40 shows that seem quite interesting. I just try and see maybe the five or six that seem most interesting to me. And um, those range from the historically important to the quirky. And I just let the rest go. And I suggest that everyone adopt a similar strategy. I, um. I do agree with you, Christina, because you took that approach in Venice and I think it was absolutely yes. the right one. And it does seem super privileged to be complaining about the amount of art on show. So perhaps the essence of this is indeed to be selective. But actually, there is a tremendous amount to be excited about um, looking down this enormous list, but also these exhibitions that we've chosen between us. Let's start with a show that's opening this week, in fact, which is the uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat show at the Barbican Art Gallery. Jane, this is one of your choices. Yes, and I think it's really staggering to think that Basquiat is actually the same age as Mark Bradford. And he seems to belong to an entirely different era, but they were both born in 1960. Um, Basquiat was dead by the time he was 27. And extraordinarily, we haven't had a show of his work since the mid-1990s, I think, at the Serpentine. And even then, that was a show of about 
20 works. Now, I am clearly harping on my age here, but I was lucky enough to see (laughs) the enormous Whitney retrospective in 1992 in New York. There's been shows of his work since, but this one does seem to be a really, really significant one. And the idea is to put Basquiat into the context of the New York scene of the late 1970s. So we're thinking Patti Smith, John Lurie, Blondie. I mean, that whole kind of Lower East Side, Bowery scene of music, fashion, street culture at a time when New York was pretty much bankrupt and you could live there cheaply and sort of make your own kind of punk aesthetic. And that, of course, is exactly what Basquiat did. One of the things about Basquiat is, is that he's become so kind of connected to the market because of these enormous prices that he's been getting. So it's it's actually about time that we try and achieve a kind of critical distance about the work, isn't it? I think it's going to be a challenge because, um, I mean, obviously there was this 110 million sale uh, of a work at uh, Sotheby's, I think, in May. Um, And the other interesting thing with Basquiat, of course, was that in a way, he almost always was a market artist, but in the sense that, you know, not the same sense we'd understand it now, by which I mean he was fantastically successful, fantastically young. As a result, there isn't a single one in a collection here, I believe. And in fact, very few public collections own works by Basquiat because the minute he hit the big time, which was 1981, 1982, when he's 21, 22, when he became a sort of huge star, um, pretty much thanks to a show at PS1 um, and the fact that he was on TV programmes and a film by Glenn O'Brien, private collectors were rushing to snap him up. So he's always been supported by a private collector base. And my understanding is that of the 100 works in this show, the vast majority are from private collections. So, Jane, you mentioned the sale uh, earlier this year of the Basquiat painting for, I think it was $110 million to a Japanese collector. Uh, Do you think that his work is uh, deserves to be sold at that level? I mean, is he in the pantheon of artists like Picasso and Gauguin and Cezanne who make uh, works which routinely trade over $100 million? I mean, I'm sort of suspicious that anybody is worth that much money if, you know, if one's being strictly moral about this question. But uh, let's take the less moral position and just accept that that's how the world works. And uh, um, I've always really highly rated him. I mean, I don't think one can say he's Picasso, but then almost nobody is Picasso. I mean, is he as good as somebody like Clifford Steele? Yes, I think absolutely. In fact, I'd say he's a more interesting artist to me. Um, He's always had this problem there again. You kind of love him or you really don't like him much at all. And he's divided people right from the very beginning. I mean, for me, I think it's that mixture of, he sort of crosses that bridge between appropriation and expressionism He was a black artist who drew very heavily from the nascent hip-hop scene. He had a lot of friends in that hip-hop world. He drew on graffiti. He drew on all kinds of popular culture. But at the same time, although he was self-taught, he was actually highly educated. He went to very good schools in Brooklyn. You know, he he came from a well-off middle-class family. And he had been obsessed with art for many years before he was known. So he actually draws a lot on, I suppose, classic modern artists. I mean, you can see Dubuffet, I think, really obviously. 
Um, he was a huge admirer of Twombly. In fact, he was a huge admirer of the whole Twombly, Rauschenberg, Merce Cunningham circle. He went to see the Primitivism show, which was a very controversial show, not once, but twice. He went to see it at the Museum of Modern Art and then went to see it in Dallas. And again, this is when he was about 20, 22. So I think that the way he mixes the cultural references of his time with some really quite classic modernism, if you like, makes him really an exciting artist. And I still think he's exciting today. And of course, he was making a commentary on being a very good looking, very successful black artist. But nonetheless, in a time in New York when it wasn't really that great a thing to be. I mean, you've only got to read um, Tom Wolfe, The Bonfire of the Vanities, and the way he describes people talking about the Bronx and Harlem to see the kind of issues that black artists and musicians were facing so I think he, he encompasses a lot of that. One of the things that's really important I think about Basquiat is that it's very difficult to say where he fits in the, in the canon because he did die at 27. I mean he was in really the first period of his of his artistic growth he there was a period of course where he um, made those works with Andy Warhol and those were deemed critically at the time to be really unsuccessful I have to say I love those paintings but he wasn't given a chance to develop, so so we w- we will never know quite how great he was. But there's certainly it's certainly true to say that there is a significant enough body of work to to <laughs> command a space like the Barbican. Yeah, I mean he was very prolific as well. Although again, that's part of the issue with his reputation because it's very obvious, and particularly as he became so successful, uh, for, you know, in financial terms, that you know a lot of lesser work still fetches pretty high prices and gets shown and is circulated. Um, but I believe, I'm pretty certain there should be enough, as long as they've they've done well with the private collectors, there should be enough really good works to hold this space. Also, they are going to put him in context of that scene. So there's going to be a film programme, there's a music programme. I think, you know, if you, I mean, I don't honestly remember the late 70s in New York, I have to say. <laughs> I think for people who do, it'll be a great sort of step back in time. I think for people who don't, it'll be a great sort of step back and possibly a bit of nostalgia for that time. Christina, you're going to talk about um, Gino de Dominicis, who's showing at Luxembourg and Diane in London, and that's specific works from a particular collection. Yes, it is. Now, um, this is a very interesting artist who's not that well known in this country. Uh, you guys probably remember uh, about 10 or 11 years ago at Freeze London, the Wrong Gallery restaged uh, an infamous installation by Gino de Domenici's, which he had presented at the Venice Biennale in 1972. Um, and that piece consisted of an otherwise empty gallery with a male or female person with Down syndrome sitting in the corner, contemplating three shapes on the floor, a ball, a square that had been drawn on the floor, and another shape, which I forget. Um, so this uh, this was shown at Freeze. It sort of uh, had mixed reactions, I think it's fair to say. Um, and I think it was uh, a lot of people who visited that fair, that was their first introduction to the artist, um, who's certainly, as I say, not very well known in this country at all. And um, Luxembourg and Diane are presenting late paintings made by um, by the artist sort of in the 80s and 90s. He sort of turned away from conceptual art and started to make paintings. And one of the reasons I'm fascinated by the show is because I really know very little about him. I um, Other than that installation, I mean, I've never seen his work at all. I know that the... Um, 
Serpentine co-director, the ever-present Hansel Rick Oberst, is a huge fan of the artist who's written an essay for the catalogue. Um, and he says, uh, in this catalogue essay, he says, For a very long time, I have believed that the medium of De Domenici's work is not drawing, nor painting, nor sculpture. It's the secret. So in other words, this is an artist who actively cultivated uh, the mystery surrounding his own art, his own persona. Uh, he didn't fit in with any known movements. He was happy not to be associated with the prevailing artistic trends of the day, like trans avant-guardia in the 1980s in Italy. And he really defies definitions and associations and labels. So I, for one, am very keen to see uh, what the painting is all about. All the work in this show comes from one collector, who's a friend of the artist and an early patron. I believe his name is Guntus Brands. Uh, and the work is all apparently for sale, so it is a selling show. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see, you know, how it goes down. Uh, so my first choice is a rather unusual pairing at the Royal Academy, which is Dali Duchamp. I have probably the most orthodox response to Salvador Dali out there, which is that I discovered him when I was about 14 years old. I fell in love with his art. I saw autumn cannibalism at the Tate, which is those soft bodies using cutlery to eat each other. And I thought he was the greatest artist alive and became obsessed for a little while. And I was really gratified actually to read, to actually to interview Philip Locker de Corsia, the photographer, who had an absolutely identical experience with Dali. And it made me, it sort of gave me some comfort in, in, in some way that I just, you know, this adolescent response to Dali uh, was shared by great artists um, but ever since then sort of from the age probably of about 16 my interest in Dali began to diminish somewhat and he became much less of a focus of my attention and to the extent which I've probably been guilty of ignoring him a bit and probably forgetting some of the good things he did do you know the paranoid critical method which was this idea of of creating one image and seeing a second image within it was actually really quite a revolutionary idea and he did paint it very effectively and it is genuinely powerful imagery but I think André Breton summed up what a lot of us think about Dali when he made an anagram of his name which was Avida Dollars and the idea of Dali being a sellout holds a lot of currency but I think there's some attempts being made quite widely there was a Pompidou show recently for instance to kind of reclaim Dali from his own uh, career suicide of sorts which I think are creditable and this to me I mean again you know you're talking Christina about a show where you're just intrigued to see what they're doing I, I, I'm, I feel hugely interested in how one can make a show where these two apparently opposing artists uh, can be shown together effectively uh, I don't know what you two think about Dali <laughs> Well, I think I personally followed a very similar trajectory in my relationship with that. I think a lot of people do, and a lot of people first encounter his work, because it is everywhere, you know, it is very hard to avoid. There's so many commercial applications of his work that um, you encounter it when you're very young, love it, as you say, become slightly obsessed with it, and then sort of discount it as you get older and see more and more art. So I totally share those feelings and I'm also very curious to see um, what, what they do and, and also discover some of the sort of seriousness of intent and 
the sort of integrity of purpose that we or I no longer associate with Dali. I think I don't, you see, I didn't have the Dali thing so much. I think probably at the same age that you were going through the Dali fascination, I was really fascinated by Francis Bacon. And that's a slightly less embarrassing one, if you know what I mean. So like, <laughs> slightly more sophisticated. <laughs> but, but I have to say, I will have to put another question because because I don't have that anxiety of thinking back to my teenage years around Dali. I've always thought in a way, what is wrong with kind of slightly embarrassing, slightly sexual young man's art? I mean, there are a few artists that sometimes take that risk, but it seems like it's very much an area that artists are not supposed to explore, perhaps in some way. And yet it's a really interesting area. I'll this, just this throw is, that out there. This is probably a shameful thing to say, but I... In a way, I kind of wish what happened to Basquiat happened to Dali, because I think if he'd have died in, let's say, 1935, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think we'd all be talking about him as a great artist today. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But I think what's interesting about this show is that, and something I'd never known until now, and it's, I think it's genuinely fascinating, is that Duchamp and Dali were mates. And the idea of Duchamp and Dali mates, you think of Dali with his twisting his moustache and speaking in this rimbombante kind of language and uh, making a kind of fool of himself. And you think of Duchamp as this ultra-cool, ultra-reserved, ultra-in-control kind of figure, the kind of textbook conceptual artist, not just the godfather of conceptual art in the sense of the work that he produced, but also this kind of austere figure that all conceptual artists since have tried to emulate. And I think that... Um, this idea that they're mates and they're hanging out on the beach in Caracas to me is a really kind of um, uh, exciting idea. This, you know, and 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 something which I know the show will explore that part of their, you know, their friendship, but it will also actually look at the ways in which their work meets, the ways, the shared ideas. Um, it will look at, for instance, that they were both at different times interested in physics, in particle physics, quantum physics, and. It will also look, of course, at their... Both of them were both interested in erotic language and how they could explore that in very different ways, of course. Dali much more direct than Duchamp. Duchamp much more veiled. Um, So there are correspondences within the work. But again, I'm interested to see how the different languages meet when you actually see them in the gallery together. But I think when you think about... uh a lot of Dali's work and you think about Duchamp's Et en Donne, I think you can see that some of it is definitely coming from the same place. Don't you think? I can see there's a definite relationship there. Given how many other shows are opening in London this autumn, it seems a bit crazy to focus on another show at the Royal Academy, but we are going to talk about Jasper Johns. Jane, you were particularly interested in this one. So if you live in New York or if you live in Cologne, because the Ludwig Museum in Cologne has a huge collection of Johns, um, this perhaps might not be top of your list. But I think for most of us in London, the UK and indeed beyond, um, this is the first chance to see a really big show of Jasper Johns for 40 years. So it's another one, a bit like Basquiat, where you can't quite believe it's been that long. Um It's a very large exhibition. It's 150 paintings and sculptures, and it's going to cover 60 years of work because Johns, who's now in his late 80s, is still working. He's quite reclusive, but he's still working. He had a brilliant show at the Courtauld Institute maybe two years ago. 
it was just absolutely yeah. fantastic and I know for a fact that Chris Afidi's uh, spoken about that show and how, how profoundly it affected him it was a brilliant show well the curator of this show is Edith Devaney and she was working on the Abstract Expressionism show and in fact she mentioned to me that for a while she actually kept it quiet uh, to Jasper Johns that she was working on the Abstract Expressionism show because she was worried that he would think she wasn't devoting enough time to this exhibition but she told me that she realised in 2013 how much work Johns was producing because he had a big show at I think Matthew Marks in New York and she realised that he was still hard at it and he goes into the studio every day and this work doesn't get seen very often. I think I absolutely love Jasper Johns and I'm beyond excitement about this show I have to say we, we keep reminiscing but I think it's important this, this is how art impacts on us isn't it but so when I was I think 18 I saw a Jasper John's show of drawings which was at the Hayward and it again very profoundly affected me and what I love so much about Jasper John's is he is such a fluent artist and what I mean by that is the the way that he can make images and the way he uses it seems every material he comes across is so almost musical I think it's that it's that fluent I genuinely think he's a great artist and I've been desperate for a John show for years and you know I'm amazed the Tate has never done a John show um and I'm absolutely thrilled that this is coming so yeah I'm um, um um, I'll be racing to the doors of the Royal Academy when it opens. I've never found him quite as easy to get as, say, Twombly and Rauschenberg, who for me were... I mean, Twombly was somebody who I I loved his work from the very first time I saw it again in my teens. Rauschenberg took me a bit longer to come round to, but when I did, I became fairly obsessed with him. Um, I haven't quite got that for Johns, although I was lucky enough to be in Cologne this summer and I was really, really struck, not just by the conceptual quality of his work, which is what I tend to think of. I mean, I do tend to think of John's very much, you know, in the conceptual framework, very much in semiotics, you know, thinking about the sign and the signifier and what does the image mean? You know, is a flag a flag? If you, if you take the word red and write it in, sorry, in painted in blue, you know, what, what, what is that saying about image and language? But I was really, really struck by just the kind of beauty of the surfaces of his paintings. And one of the works I loved, it was one of the famous number ones, but it appeared to have been painted, I think, in blackboard paint. And it was almost, it was matte, but it was almost slippery and slippy. And it was just beautiful. So, no, I'm, I am now extremely excited to see this show because, as I say, apparently it's going to cover the obvious works, the targets, the flags, the numbers... And it's going to go right the way through to this series that he's been working on called the Catenari series. Um, a Catenari is a kind of loop that hangs from, like a suspension bridge. It hangs from a, a, a structure. So it could be a loop hanging from a grid. And he's been making these works and I find them really elegiac and rather mysterious and quite, they relate to his early work, but they're also quite different. And I don't think you could imagine that they were made by a young man. So, no, I'm really quite excited about this, I must say. And I think this is going to be one that, if you don't like John's, I think this is going to be the one that probably changes your mind. Christina, what are your thoughts on Jasper? So I'm also a huge fan of Jasper John's works. I'd say that he's one of my top three favourite artists um, of the post-war period. But I just wanted to um, consider um, a, a slightly different angle on this which is that Jasper Johns is 87 as we've established he has no children he is believed to uh, 
um, possess an extremely large collection of his own work. And it seems extraordinary that Tate has not organized a show because that is the normal way that artists, uh, that artists are courted by museums for major donations after their death. I mean, the Royal Academy, um, doesn't, um, really collect in the same way that Tate does. So it's slightly wasted <laughs> opportunity. Um, and one of the big, big questions, um, in our world, uh, in our art world at the moment is what is going to happen to that collection? Is he going to set up a foundation, uh, you know, like, the Andy Warhol Foundation, the Rauschenberg Foundation, is he going to gift that collection to institutions? And if he is, why hasn't Tate got in on the act? Jane, Christina, thank you very much. Basquiat, Boom for Real, is at the Barbican Art Gallery until January the 28th. Gino de Dominicis, works from the collection of Guntis Brands, is at Luxembourg and Diane from the 4th of October until the 8th of December. Jasper Johns, Something Resembling Truth, is at the Royal Academy from the 23rd of September until December the 10th. Dali Duchamp is at the Royal Academy from the 7th of October until the 3rd of January. You can read Christina Ruiz's full account of the opening of Zeitzmoko on our website and in our forthcoming October issue. Out on 1st of October, it also includes an interview with the pioneering feminist artist Judy Chicago and a special report on corporate sponsorship in the art world. If you enjoyed today's podcast, don't forget to subscribe and you can also let us know what you think on Twitter or Facebook at The Art Newspaper. (laughs) 